0: How's it going, everybody? This is the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. And today we have Kevin Bass on. Kevin Bass is a PhD student. Is that correct? That's right. And PhD in your, student. What are you getting your PhD in? Uh
1: so I, I suppose what it's ending up being is um, the f- like physiological regulation of certain metabolic processes that are involved in immunity. So basically, like how the colon in the gut contributes to ketogenesis and the production of ketones. So you guys have heard that often ketones are produced in the liver in response to fasting or ketogenic diets. Well, it turns out that actually ketones are also produced in the colon and these might have really important effects for
0: our physiology. Interesting. And, um, and, and you had mentioned, so I found Kevin on Twitter. I think you had some discourse with, a uh, positive discourse with, um, uh, Uh, one of the Nadolsky brothers, and then I found Mm. you. And I was just basically trying to follow as many people as I can. I'm trying to expose myself to as many evidence-based practitioners as I can. And um, I heard you mention in another podcast, kind of what your your mission with social media is. And for me, it's been really cool to see, but I kind of want you to explain kind of why you produce content, uh, why, you know, obviously you're, you're, incredibly busy with this piece work i i have a friend who is doing his phd currently and um uh the microbiome and, and genomics and he's just so busy all the time and and obviously to, to add that onto your workload i mean there's got to be a reason right so so kind of explain why um you're 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 going that path of, of, of making all the social media content
1: well um so i'm in a track that's uh, like an md phd track physician scientist so the idea is that i get a combination of medical training so i've done my first year as a med school and then i'm also finishing the phd and then i'm going to go back to med school to be sort of a combined like doctor scientist where um i use my uh my medical background in order to inform the way that i think about science and i approach science so i end up doing like um, medically oriented science. And so that's the idea behind that degree. But in addition to that, I have a, a very, like, I'm like interested in a lot of things as part of sort of my personality. Um, and I kind of need a little bit more than, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I need, uh, um, I need a little bit more stimulation, I think, than a lot of people do. So one of the things that I was Um, really interested in going into medical schools like how am I going to make my medical and scientific career really meaningful and I wanted a a really big and uh, um, a sort of really impactful path for my uh, medical and scientific training so one of the things that I became really interested in was the obesity epidemic Um, and the lights just turned off I'm just going to leave them off because in order to get them back on I have to like jump up and down uh and I like so the and so then I ended up getting online and talking to people about the obesity epidemic. I thought there would be it's such like such an easy and obvious thing to solve like you just need to get rid of processed foods etc cetera, etc cetera. but actually like the more people you talk to online the more books you read more diversity of opinion there's actually a huge amount of controversy about it which is ridiculous in my opinion and and um and then I I seemed to me that based on that, uh, based on that experience of seeing all that controversy, what actually needs to happen is we need to actually come to some sort of unified understanding of of what's causing the obesity epidemic, but we can't do that. If, if everybody's constantly fighting and everybody's constantly fighting because of misinformation. And, and I think misinformation essentially exists because, because the grifters like people are trying to make money and the more new novel things that you say in the uh, social media landscape, the more attention you get. So there's this sort of incentive to say new and novel things and controversial things and cause debates and stir up trouble. And as a result, we have this proliferation of a wide variety of different novel perspectives that are a bunch it's like there's a bunch of bullshit that proliferates. so in order to deal with that in order to deal with the obesity epidemic eventually essentially we have to deal with the misinformation epidemic so um so then my interest ended up transitioning to towards more from misinformation so i find this super exciting super uh, interesting and i think that this is like one of the things that um one of the hobbies that sort of sustains me apart from doing the PhD and the MD, which is it's, it's really interesting, super interesting, but it's like something on a day-to-day basis that's constantly changing for me, which I need as that kind of like stimulation. So uh, yeah, day in and day out, I'm sort of struggling against misinformation and trying to figure out what the solution, the eventual solution uh, will be to it. And part of that, you know, where I am right now in that, uh, that journey is, Um, well, so like, ultimately I think we need, uh, (laughs) some sort of like systematic way of assessing and evaluating misinformation. I didn't talk about this on other podcasts, but I guess I am now like part of it is because I've, you know, in part, because I'm doing the, the medical training and the PhD training and like, I'm also doing the online stuff so i like i'm not sleeping very much so like i'm just like rambling right now but like okay i'll i'll, I'll give you a, i'll give you some new stuff compared to what i've given the other podcast so sure um one of the things that i became really interested in is like having a systematic way of evaluating misinformation so everybody disagrees about what misinformation actually is so one of the first things you can say one of the first things you hear whenever you talk about like we need to deal with the misinformation problem is you'll hear people say well who decides what's misinformation like how do we decide you know everybody has a different opinion even the experts disagree about what's misinformation what's not so I know based on being in the space of, of a bunch of misinformation, I have a really good idea of what misinformation is and what it isn't. And so I decided like, m- maybe what we need is sort of an algorithm or a sort of system of evaluating and explaining what misinformation is. And yeah, so then I started trying to develop that, but in order to develop that, you really need a lot of examples and a lot of case studies and a lot of documentation about what m- misinformation is. And ultimately I decided to, um, so much ultimately, yeah, ultimately LA I decided like I need resources and I need money and I need people working for me to, to help me out with that. So then sort of the phase I'm in on social media is like trying to grow and build it as a business and monetize. Yeah. So that's where I am right now. And ultimately I would like to monetize and then feed some of that money back into this misinformation project so that we can then create a, this is my, my dream. My crazy dream is to create a, like a system or a, or a systematic way of documenting misinformation in a way that persuades people that people are like, Oh, yeah, well, that is a very clear way of documenting misinformation. That is a very clear way of thinking about misinformation. And I'm not necessarily going to say that I'm the the only person I have the only opinion about what misinformation is and what it isn't. It's sort of a dialogue. It's a conversation between many different people with many different opinions, right? Some of which are legitimate, and some of which are not and some of which are going to be persuasive and some that are not going to be persuasive. But ultimately, like, I would like to have a role and I, I will have a role in sort of understanding what misinformation is because eventually as a society we're going to decide that uh, enough is enough and we're going to have some sort of set of rules i don't know what those rules are necessarily going to end up being but we're going to have some sort of set of rules about what decides what misinformation is and what it isn't and um this has been done before we've had these kinds of problems before in society we've had like you know quacks you know snake oil salesmen that used to be a problem people selling opium and alcohol you know like tinctures that people would give their children and stuff, people selling miracle cancer cures, that that stuff has all been regulated. We've agreed to, as a society what the sort of bad stuff is, and we can agree as a society what bad stuff is, what it isn't. It's going to come down ultimately to common sense, and it's going to come down to a consensus as a society. And so I've rambled a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's kind of my passion. And um, I want to contribute to that and in addition to sort of my scientific career at the same time. And I want to do a little bit of of all of that. So
0: no 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 that's that's huge i think um i think the the fact that you're going the social media route the amount of reach you can get is is much greater by by targeting that area right um i was speaking with um a gentleman uh, who's doing his phd research um in hypertrophy and he was interviewing me for for something and he was mentioning how we can get to a point where and and i believe we will where like meta analyses are are um essentially just you plug in the data into a machine, and then it produces a media analysis. And you don't really like have to. So, if we had some systematic way of that occurring, then the bias is also potentially removed. And then, then it's communicating it, right? So, like, if we can get, you know, if we could get, and this is the reason why I'm even doing this podcast. If we can get more of those evidence-based people, those the scientists, if we can get them on the front lines, like their reach, they need to be the people reaching people on social media. Obviously, the that that is a challenge in itself because you're a snake oil salesman those are the people getting the views ones who say controversial yeah. things so how do we get yeah. those people to have the biggest reach or a greater reach right um because i i agree so i used to i used to think from the perspective of like oh well like freedom of speech let people say what they want but then it's very hard when you're not an expert in this in, in a in a in a particular field or you don't have any, even a base level of understanding to know what's misinformation or isn't Like, for example, um, I spend most of my time with with bodybuilding and and hypertrophy research. And then, uh, for example, like if I need to do some financial stuff, um, I've had a hard time in that space because I have a hard time. I don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of like taxes and and different things. So hiring somebody in that space, even just finding someone who's competent that I can trust has been very difficult because I don't even have a base level of understanding of a lot of these things. Um, So I agree. I think we need to have one people we can trust they need to be reaching a large audience um and i think again i think social media or whatever avenue we can do like for like i i know all like you know i know mass research review and examine and stuff but that's not something that like the general population is exposed to generally speaking it's people who are who are already trying to do this stuff they're trying to improve their body composition they're trying to to be healthier they're already involved in the research but how do we get like you know, my parents, like, you know what I mean? Like, how do we get them to to, to, to be exposed to this stuff and whatnot? Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I feel about that. So I, I think that's amazing that, that you're doing this. And um, I really, you know, wish you good luck in, in, in any way I can contribute to that. Uh, but, but um on that, I kind of wanted you to, to briefly touch on the obesity epidemic. Um, there, there seems to be some controversy. Maybe you could go into simply like and I know it's not a simple controversy, but what, what really is causing obesity? What what factors contribute to obesity? Is it truly a, a willpower, as a lot of people like to say, or or is it is it multifactorial? What what contributes to our obesity epidemic?
1: Well, that's interesting. Is it willpower? So, I, I, you as you know, as a bodybuilder. Um, and as somebody who's like very carefully tracking your macros, you're very carefully tracking your calorie intake. You're doing it on a day-to-day basis, and you are exerting willpower every single, probably like every single minute, in 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 achieving what you've achieved with your body composition. And I don't think there's any question about that. And anybody who's involved in bodybuilding, like knows that um, the amount of discipline and willpower necessary to to achieve that is is substantial. And so that's a really interesting juxtaposition sort of that perspective with say the public health perspective. And so I'm just sort of exploring this as we talk about this, Mm -hmm. the public health perspective is a little bit different. So the public health perspective tends to emphasize, um, lived environments. Okay. So here, yeah, here's a, here's a good way of framing it. I think I've got this for somebody like you, um, You are going to control every single aspect of your lifestyle in order to achieve your goals, and you're going to do that on a consistent basis, sometimes you might fall off for like a couple days, or maybe even a week, or I don't know how long, (laughs) how long it might be the case, but sometimes it happens, but you jump right back on and you exert that discipline. For most people who are concerned with their everyday lives, they're concerned with like their 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 wife, their family, the, the things that they're dealing with. They're not necessarily bodybuilders and not necessarily concerned with maximizing their composition and having like the best physique in the world or one of the best physiques in the world. Um, they're a little bit more on autopilot, right? They're not exerting as much energy in that particular goal. That's not their set of values. That's not their Um, their focus, they might have other things that are distracting them. And so for those people, the sort of default environment or the default set of behaviors or practices or culture is going to be a lot more important for determining what their body composition outcomes are going to be, they're more on autopilot. So the public health point of view is that um, um, it's not so much of a willpower issue, because most people are not really approaching their body composition and their health from a willpower perspective, they're sort of and I think this goes along for most things we do like most things. If I'm not a, if I'm say a, a, a bodybuilder or if I'm in my case, a jujitsu athlete, I'm putting a lot of energy into jujitsu. I'm putting a lot of energy into medical school. I'm putting a lot of energy into uh, learning about science, but I'm not necessarily putting a lot of energy into finance. So I'm sort of going with the flow of finance. I'm like, what does TurboTax say? I'm going onto TurboTax and like whatever TurboTax tells me to do is what I do because I don't have the time and the energy to do anything different. If I if I could do more, that'd be great, but I'd need more hours in the day to do it. So I'm going along with sort of the 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 tax environment of TurboTax, so to speak. In the same way for people who aren't necessarily as interested in like their body composition and maybe even their health, they're going along with the food environment. So the public health point of view is like, most people aren't going to be super concerned with, uh, with pursuing fitness. Most people aren't going to be super concerned with pursuing their, their physical health. And so they're going to default to whatever their food environment and their culture tells them to do. So, um, the reason we have the obesity epidemic is because we have a food environment and a food culture and a, and a sort of way of life, a Western lifestyle that promotes obesity. And the things that do that are, um, physical activity is not such a big deal. Physical activity is important for metabolic health in the long-term, but it's not really so important for weight loss. Uh, maybe it's has some, it, it does have a role in body composition, but for determining overall body weight, it's not that important because Uh, there's something called the constrained model of energy expenditure such that most people don't um, or so in general uh, people are going to expend the same amount of energy per day no matter how much exercise they do in general um, there are some exceptions but that's being that's there's a guy named Herman Ponser who's really promoting this who's put forward some really um, influential studies that have suggested that uh, that exercise isn't such an important determinant of, of weight loss. It's more, it's more that, you know, as bodybuilders know, abs are made in the kitchen, right? It's more that uh, uh, an energy intake issue. And so our culture tends to promote excess energy intake. And it does so in the form of of hyper palatable, ultra um, energy dense foods. So foods that taste extremely good and have a lot of energy in them. And so you can just pack a lot of these foods in a short period of time and you wanna keep eating them. (laughs) And then you end up eating an excess amount of energy and then you gain an excess amount of weight And, um, essentially what we've had happen is over the course of say the last 50 years, different companies have competed with each other in order to sell the most food. The companies that have sold the most delicious and energy packed foods are the ones that have uh, stayed in business and the ones that haven't have, you know, fallen out of business. So capitalism itself has produced a situation where we have foods that are making us fat. They're making us obese by virtue of the way capitalism works. So the only way that we're going to, according to a public health point of view, the only way we're going to reverse this is, I mean, yeah, sure, promoting um, health literacy, nutritional literacy, exercise literacy, all that stuff is definitely going to help. But probably for most people who don't want to like really make that a huge part of their lifestyle, which is probably going to be the majority of people if we're just being honest with ourselves. um, they're going to go to default with the lived environment so we probably need to (laughs) i guess like this sort of um the free market system that has produced these hyper palatable foods that are causing people to become obese probably needs to be regulated to a certain degree so that's that's sort of uh i think that that's sort of like what's causing the situation and maybe that's the um in my opinion that's that's perhaps one of the uh the uh, solutions to it. I don't know what you think about that.
0: Um, It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, obviously from, from a perspective of like uh, myself, like I like to have palatable foods and I understand where those appropriately fit, but I understand that also people, you know, most people don't know where those would appropriately fit in, into it, into their lifestyle. I mean, a, a lot of people probably don't. I mean, I guess people understand that like if I eat a cheeseburger, it's probably not good for me, you know, to some degree, but um, and, and and have a general understanding of like if I eat fruits and veggies, then it's probably you know more health promoting. Um, but do they understand that maybe that's what's driving their you know obesogenic environment? Is that driving their obesity? Uh, it's hard to say. I I, I don't know what the, the 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 solution is to that potentially. I do like again like I do like having the ability to go to McDonald's if I want to and buy a Big Mac. Do I really lean into that very much? No, not really. Um, but yeah, I, I, I also am not an expert, so I don't know what the actual solution should be. Obviously on the information front, I do think that maybe some regulation, if we could do it in a way that isn't, um, too in, in, impeding or imposing, but I I don't know how to do that, you know, personally. So, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 no. So, um, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, I feel the same way. I don't want like to things to be unavailable but hmm. at the same time uh i don't you know certainly the 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 average diet needs to change substantially from right. what it is
0: and that i think so. you can agree on that and then there's also genetic factors as well to some degree and drives to eat right there's some people who just don't aren't hungry and they can eat hyper palatable food but they also maintain a, a lower body mass um you know we you should talk about yeah go ahead
1: yeah, which is super interesting because now we have uh, like a whole new revolutionary class of drugs called the GLP-1 receptor months, yeah. agonists where, um, you know, people can take these drugs and they don't have the desire to eat anymore. Right. So it's just right. spontaneously, that's, that's they huge, spontaneously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They become like one of those skinny people who can eat ice cream and uh, they can eat it for every meal if they want. You know, there are people like that who can just like, eat trash and stay lean. They right. become those people so yeah.
0: It, but yeah and then i mean obviously there's some argument for like food composition is that the health you know most healthy thing uh you know it's hard to say it's probably better to eat less food and calories in general that probably on the hierarchy is you know overeating is probably way more important than tackling food composition is probably next yeah. to that but um so so i wanted to go into uh well briefly uh seed oils um i kind of have, mm-hmm. have a i kind of have a uh a hypothesis. I guess, I guess this is just my observation. I've I've seen a few people demonize seed oils, and um, I used to be one of those people. I just didn't understand the the research, and some people that I looked to um, didn't like them for different reasons. But I realized that a lot of it was correlation. Um, so so like, I think it was like Ansel Keys and a few of these other people were promoting that. Uh, actually, I can't even remember what Ansel Key's stance was to be honest, so I'm not even going to state that. But, <laughs> um, the that's so so that these were promoting obesity and heart disease. But I think, and, and you did a video that kind of opened my eyes as to why some of these people believed it, it was because our hyper palatable foods contain these seed oils, so our drive to eat from these hyperpalatable foods is containing seed oils is, is what's causing obesity, but it's not these seed oils themselves because these seed oils, when they're studied in, 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 uh, apart from these obese foods, if you want to call them that they, um, they are actually health promoting. So what I think mm-hmm. was a, that what was happening was a mischaracterization or, or a lumping of like, okay, well there's canola oil on this cake and, cake you know like like it's causing we're getting more more uh increase in, in 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 processed foods which increases our consumption of seed oils and then you have this increase uh in in heart disease and, and diabetes and all these other things but then you study them separately and it's like well it's not the canola oil itself it's the canola oil when it's combined with uh sugar and you know it tastes good like you're not just drinking canola oil uh, i don't know if that I was just thinking about that today, but I don't know if that has any accuracy at all. I'm kind of curious your opinion on that.
1: Yeah, like the rise of, of ultra processed foods has um, come about at the same time as the rise of consumption in seed oils. So seed oils are a really cheap way to add fat to foods. Um, it could have been different where you had the rise of ultra processed foods and you used butter. Instead. right and we would still have ultra processed foods they would just have buttered maybe they'd be a little bit more expensive right right but it's uh, just more expensive right and and there's no evidence and all the evidence points to this to the fact that um butter and canola oil will promote just as much overeating or just as little overeating in either case actually if you take uh palm oil which is it's not the same thing as butter but it's a little bit more similar to um it's a little bit more similar to, to butter than it is, of course, to to canola oil. If you compare that to canola oil, you actually get a slightly more weight gain on palm oil than you would on butter. I'm sorry, on, on a canola oil. Yeah. So there's a, a suggestion that potentially even canola oil on a you know gram per, per gram basis is actually less obesogenic than butter. But the idea is that it's it's correlational, as you're pointing out. It's like Just because canola oil or these different seed oils have uh, increased in their consumption at the same time as ultra processed foods have doesn't necessarily mean that canola oil was the cause it could have been just any other source of added fat. And I don't think that there's any evidence at all to suggest that simply replacing canola or the seed oils with other sources of added fat like tallow or something is going to make them somehow uh, those foods less obesogenic they're just going to be the same foods they're just going to have a different fat source in
0: them right so, it's the palatability that's yeah that's causing so like us to fries, eat those.
1: yeah exactly like and some people and so it's actually kind of a con uh, like a, a little bit of a contradictory argument too because some people are like well french fries with tallow taste so much better than french fries with soybean oil well do you think you're going to eat more? Okay. If if, let's assume that's true. Are you going to eat more French fries with tallow than with soybean oil? Then are you going to eat more of them then? So is, is what is the soybean oil causing the French fries to be obesogenic? It's kind of weird. Like if it tastes worse, wouldn't you expect to eat less? So it's like, it's a strange argument that people often make like, Oh, it tastes better. And yet you're eating more of the other one. Okay. But There's no evidence for any of that it's probably just the food itself that is obesogenic french fries itself that's obesogenic, if you have french fries from any fat source you're just going to eat a lot of them because it's a lot of added fat and it's very savory and it's very calorie dense and so people get this mixed up. Um, simply it's a, it's a, it's historical accident that seed oils have happened at the same time as these other ultra processed foods. It could have happened some other different way in an alternative universe and simply replacing seed oils with these other sources of fat aren't, isn't going to change anything. So according to everything we know about the science, like there's been like oil, you know, different fat replacement studies. There's, there's no difference between them in terms of the, 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 uh, the, the, in fact, the metabolic rate. In fact, there's you increase the metabolic rate more on seed oils than you do on yeah. uh, like butter. You actually have yeah. a faster metabolism to eat seed oils compared to butter. So it's like
0: and and a reduction in and and LDL and these some of these yeah. markers that that are that are Uh, bad yeah right
1: yeah yeah and And if you look at long yeah like long-term like five-year randomized controlled trials where you literally literally replace like butter and saturated fat with these seed oils you see a reduction in cardiovascular disease and a reduction the rate of death and like okay like you can say okay let's go back to butter but like that doesn't make any sense at all i'm not saying to like have seed oils all everywhere you know but like if you have a choice between the two like i would definitely choose seed oils
0: right um and and I want to kind of get into that. So, so one, two things, uh, unprocessed, lean red meats. Do they have a place in the diet? Um, so, so, and, and coming from my perspective, I, I, um, was eating more red meat. I, I generally have always leaned towards leaner cuts because I do feel like there are some nutrients potentially in red meat that may be beneficial. Um, You know, maybe those can be uh, obtained from other sources. But I think like iron, heme iron to some degree, um, some of the other micronutrients. um, But, uh, you know, I'm not talking like these are like 90-10. These are leaner cuts. Is there any place for that uh, in the diet? And, you know, in general, should we be limiting our red meat consumption?
1: This is funny because um, just a few, you know, months ago, I would say, uh, something different than I say now, but sure. And also like I've often been associated with like sort of the plant-based community. And, um, although, although they, they tend to hate me these days. Um, yeah, I would say with, I would say if you're going to eat red meat, lean red meat is going to be definitely superior, like for sure, because of the reduction in saturated fat and the reduction in LDL, um, well, the reduction in ldl that you're going to get on lean versus fatty red meat but the second thing that's really interesting is there's been a whole story about iron especially heme iron being harmful right i don't know if you're if you're getting yeah. into this like yeah but actually uh i was looking through some of the prospective observational research as well as some of the mendelian randomization, like some different study designs and the latest um, maybe over the last ten or twenty years, and the, the the higher quality research seems to indicate that higher blood iron levels are are better for for cardiovascular health rather than lower iron levels, which is very surprising to me because there's always this theory that uh, that iron in the blood um, it it tends to create free radicals and then you get uh, you know more atherosclerosis as a result of these more free radicals disrupting the the arterial walls and all this stuff. Actually, it's not true. So actually, if you have maybe the higher tertile, so the higher third, in terms of the of meaning, um, if you take a population, you split it into thirds, if you're in the top third, in terms of your iron content in the blood, you actually have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's thought to be now causal. So actually, higher iron levels may protect against cardiovascular disease. So that's a really interesting new finding. Yeah. Now, it may be the case that heme iron may contribute to colon cancer so it may slightly increase your risk of colon cancer but because cardiovascular disease is such a much 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 bigger risk than colon cancer is it may balance out i actually need to like do that calculation but it's not so clear now necessarily to me that heme iron is such a terrible thing for you so maybe maybe a red meat is a good idea yeah (laughs) Uh, but but certainly not fatty red meat. Yeah, I think lean right, meat, right. red meat is great. And I think having those good, robust iron levels is not a bad idea. And red meat has a lot of nutrients. I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying all this among my like, liberal. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Like, but like, I think it's red meat, you know, lean red meat's not such a bad thing. In in many ways, I do. I would say to definitely stay away if you can from fatty red meat. But lean, I don't know. I'm yeah, a kind of, I'm a little bit excited about it.
0: I heard you talking about the iron. Um, and and I, um, I do think that like a mixed diet is probably a better idea, like, because there's, you know, benefits of eating fish and, and other, uh, you know, just having a variety, like not just simply eating red meat. Um, that's my perspective has changed over time on that too. Um, but yeah, I think that like, if you look at the nutrient profile, if you can keep that saturated fat down under, I think what's 10% is the recommendation, generally speaking, which, you know, most people who are eating red meat aren't doing anyway. So uh, that's there. There's something to be said there for sure. Uh, but yes, I've, I'm one of those people who, uh, you know, like I, I, sometimes a client will send me blood work or something and their iron would be high. And there's like some supplements, or if you could c- consume calcium alongside the red meat that I was like, Hey, let's reduce the intake or take this supplement or consume calcium alongside it. Um, because, you know, I was of the belief that iron maybe uh, led to some, some problems, colon cancer being one, and, and a few other things, uh, maybe some issues with the liver. Uh, I, you know, Uh, But yeah, so, so I was just curious on that. I know you generally follow a more vegetarian kind of pescatarian diet. Um, Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I don't eat I don't eat red meat. So whenever I tell you this, I'm telling you this because science, it's not because uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, promoting Yeah, I'm not promoting my diet. I'm just saying like, which I hope lends some credibility what I'm to what I'm saying. You've changed my my perspective for sure. Yeah, I genuinely think that at least as far as cardiovascular disease is concerned, people should worry a lot less about their iron levels than they did in the past. And, right. and uh, yeah, for sure. So in general, probably
0: lowering your saturated fat intake, though, is a good idea. I think so. Whatever. Sorry about that. Yep. Um, Okay, so yeah, no, no, what I was saying was, um, you've definitely changed my perspective, um, obviously being transparent, but I I mean, I'm eating more fish, um, and and more of those healthier fats as a part of my diet. Um, And and, and vegetables is a big thing that I as a bodybuilder, um, I've been very uh, adamant about and and trying to communicate that to people because bodybuilders, they tend to, for some reason, not eat vegetables and fruits. And uh, I'm just like thinking like the one of the main things and i'm curious your opinion on this like that we can probably do that's simple if you're controlling your nutrient intake is eating fruits and vegetables like i i just think it's one of the simple most simple ways to to potentially um mitigate some of your risk is adding some fruits and vegetables to your food i don't know what you think about that um well yeah I, i i don't know
1: whenever you're like bulking though right how it's hard to get in enough calories, especially if you're eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, then you're going to end up with like GI issues, right? You like have to be strategic. Like yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you have to make sure to use like the right fruits and vegetables and lower right, fod, map and, right, right. Yeah. Squashes yeah, because, and stuff
0: I found. Right, right.
1: Yeah. Because like what I'm noticing right now is I'm trying to eat. I'm eating a good amount. I'm not like I know that you're like in a contest phase right now. So you're at like a 2000 calories a day. So for you, it's probably really easy because you're not eating yeah, just <laughs> eating
0: vegetables. Yeah,
1: you're not. Yeah. <laughs> but like, but like for somebody who's like trying to eat like 3000, man, like I'm, I'm still trying to find the right balance. So yeah, no, I, I definitely think though that eating fruits and vegetables is a great thing and eating like whole grains and like oatmeal and stuff. That's going to be really good for, for, um, proper metabolic function, but what I've noticed, you have to figure out like what works for you, I guess.
0: Yeah. And what I've noticed is sometimes it's just a no effort thing where it's just like, oh, well, chicken and rice chickens, this is what builds muscle. Right. And it's more so of like, okay, well, could we have, you know, could we look at pal- palatability in the case of of a, a masking phase? Can we look at palatability like uh, and, and and lower gas uh, sources of, of fruits and vegetables, like blending spinach into a shake or something like that? Uh, obviously, it to be more strategic about that. But essentially, like even if I come to someone who's at like a a, a eucaloric or isocaloric state, um, a lot of the time there they're, they're, there's there's not a lot of effort there, and it's because maybe there's this association of just like oh, chicken and rice is what builds muscle these micronutrients have no importance for anything else blah 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 blah. yeah so I think that's unfortunate yeah yeah that's yeah. unfortunate well i i don't know oh sorry to interrupt you no, i think it's
1: definitely I, yeah adding fruits and vegetables can help your long-term health if you're interested in, in that beyond I, just looking shredded yeah
0: i've noticed some bodybuilders at higher levels there was a, a gentleman recently I'll, I'll leave him nameless but uh had a he was in the Highest percentile, uh, 99th percentile for his cardiac CT. Like you, your likelihood of having a, a cardiovascular event in the next four years is like 99 or something crazy. And he mentioned that he didn't eat fruits and vegetables. And obviously this guy takes performance <laughs> enhancing drugs. There's like, oh, there's so many other compounding factors, but I'm like, man, if, if he had eaten some, you know, something <laughs> throughout, like, even when he's dieting too, like some broccoli, like, could he have been a lo- little bit lower? Um, for sure. Yeah. I think I would say yes, but obviously that's a speculation. Um, it's,
1: yeah yeah
0: it's but speculation
1: I, but i think there's a lot of good reason to believe that he could I,
0: be yeah. yeah and i've noticed sure. on my blood tests and a few other people that if i increase their like for example my ldl dropped in half from going from off season to contest prep and it mm. my fruit and veggie intake almost doubled i mean there's mm. obviously but look look there's body weight improvement as well I'm, I'm, my body composition is better I'm, I'm leaner i wasn't necessarily metabolically unhealthy prior like i was still within that range but Obviously, weight reduction is a huge factor. I can, I can only imagine that the vegetable intake uh, increasing had some because of, you know, an off season is harder to get those fruits and vegetables in. Again, speculation.
1: But- no, 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 100%, 100% fruits and vegetables will reduce your LDL cholesterol. And LDL cholesterol is a really important risk factor. Fruits and vegetables will reduce your blood pressure. Blood pressure is a really important risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Your exposure, your body's exposure, your, your arterial, your cardiovascular system's exposure to high blood pressure and to high LDL levels will increase your um, the rate at which you uh, have atherosclerosis. So, if you can reduce these risk factors, you will reduce the rate of atherosclerosis, and you can do that by eating more fruits and vegetables. So, I definitely think it's it's more than speculative. We have a a, a good amount of of. I would say, I would say we can say conclusively that that's the case. If you add more fruits and vegetables, especially the right kinds of fruits and vegetables, um, you will, uh, reduce the rate at which you have atherosclerosis. So,
0: yeah. And that's, and some. I, I think I've heard something along the lines of uh, people with higher meat intakes, the risk is mitigated. Uh, if there is risk, there's sure. risk is mitigated with higher fruit, fruit, and veggie sure. intakes as well. Um, and I did want to get into to heart disease uh, because I think it's something that. Um, if we're talking bodybuilders, uh, what what uh, generally affects them? Obviously, the general population as well, um, but bodybuilders in particular, because now we have these uh, uh, other things that are contributing to um, skewed lipids and and higher blood pressure because of higher body mass and and some of these drugs that drive up angiotensin and and, and some uh, and and um, kidney stress and things like that. But uh, along the lines of um, uh, cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, ldl is is that a good marker to track your cardiovascular risk um compared to uh apob a more specific uh, uh marker and then and then where does blood pressure also lie within that that risk factor like where does it contribute as well i know that kind of kind of a convoluted question but maybe you can yeah
1: get yeah. Together. yeah yeah so so apob is going to be the better Marker to track than LDL cholesterol. Most people just track LDL cholesterol because it's a convention. It's slightly cheaper, but it's not much cheaper. Yeah, Uh, most ApoB tests cost maybe like five dollars if you can get the right, um, you know, the right uh, company to to sell it to you. Uh, It's not an expensive test. It shouldn't be an expensive test. So Apo B should be the marker that you're going to track. And it's going to be the marker that um, sometimes Apo B and and LDLC are, are discordant, meaning uh, LDLC is not going to give you the information, the right information. It's going to misdirect you compared to what Able B will. Able B is, is the thing that you need to track. It is the particle that is causing the um, atherosclerosis directly. So Able B is the one you definitely want to track if you at all have the ability to do so. You can fill in with LDLC if that's all you have, but you should definitely be trying to track able b that said uh yeah no, know able b is important Uh, blood blood pressure is also super important as is like don't smoke uh keep your body fat percentage low don't like do these nasty dirty bulks where you get really big and and um if you do it might be a good idea to go on a blood pressure medication there's things you can supplement taurine taurine can help moderate your blood pressure fruits and vegetables can help moderate your blood pressure uh using less salt and replacing some of that salt with you know i I don't know if you've seen the recent thing i've had so i just just watched it this morning with breakfast with with potassium Mm -hmm. that can also help you to uh, mitigate some of the effects of of that so yeah definitely all these risk factors are important ldl and or Rather, A b isn't the only important risk factor. There's actually a lot of different things that are important. Probably just the inflammation of bulking fast is probably not the best thing in the world. Yeah, so the stress. Bulking, yeah, bulking slower is probably a better idea if you if you can. If And I know that sometimes, like, if you're making those gains, it's sometimes hard to do that because you're just in well, that. Well, yeah. And there's some <laughs> caveats that I
0: would throw out there as a, as a coach and stuff is, is one, when I see a... a, a a bodybuilder who's who's um like you know very young and and very very large. Um, I'm no longer like super impressed if they're like, oh yeah, I started bodybuilding three years ago. I, I'm more concerned for what that is in the <laughs> long term. Um, I, I generally am like, oh my gosh, like what stress did that happen to his to his heart? And then there are certain compounds that bodybuilders will utilize that they affect the they'll 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 put a lot of water retention on and they'll assume that they gain a bunch of muscle mass. But then, what is that also doing to your heart? Uh, the stress of of water in in the you know compartment in your chest, and just in general with your blood pressure, um, I can imagine that that's very stressful as well. So I, I like that you threw out that point.
1: So Stan Efferding has has like a. Real- I noticed he posts a lot of really interesting stuff about blood pressure on Instagram. And yeah. based on what I've seen him post, I feel really confident that he would be a really good resource for this. So I, maybe follow yeah. his stuff on blood pressure. I think that would 100%. be a really good He good idea. A-
0: I, so I, I got certified in the vertical that, that's where I was the red meat the canola oil and I was kind of putting all these pieces together um, and I've kind of formulated my own thing is over time but yes uh, he's very big on potassium intake magnesium all your electrolytes doing that first but I think it's an enhanced bodybuilder considering uh, an ARB or some other uh, blood pressure medication uh, statins you're mentioning that that you think that most people should be on uh, why do you feel that way uh, about statins
1: um, statins. You know, like th- the more I look into the research, the literature on this, it's so such a weird thing. And I feel like I'm taking crazy pills on statins because on statins, I'm actually like on most of these issues that you and I are talking about, I'm like so just squarely within the mainstream. Um, I'm in like the sort of advanced, very scientifically informed mainstream. But like, I'm very much in the mainstream. But on statins, I again I I think I'm super in the mainstream as at least as far as the science is concerned but the guidelines are really weird about LDL cholesterol compared to what the science says in my opinion and I'm I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when it comes to LDL cholesterol because the more I learn about it okay so here's some really interesting stuff this is just some I don't know how practical this is, but this is just like super interesting. Humans don't have like normal LDL cholesterol levels. We have like way higher LDL cholesterol levels than pretty much every other non-human mammal out there, including like chimpanzees, including primates. Like Our LDL cholesterol is like three times higher than they should be. And it's unclear why this is the case. There's like biological reasons why this is the case, but like, why did we evolve like that? It's a strange thing. If you look at, um, our LDL receptors, they're saturated at like three times lower LDL cholesterol than we actually have. So like, why do we have such high LDL cholesterol? Again, if our LDL receptors are saturated at much lower levels, if you look at people with genetic mutations that dramatically reduce their LDL cholesterol, they have no like untoward effects. If they have the right kinds of mutations that don't mess up other metabolic pathways, right? They don't have any bad effects at all all they have is like lower rates of cardiovascular disease and everything else is completely normal yeah. so like um and then and then the other thing is, is if you like use certain drugs to reduce ldl cholesterol to like really low levels especially like these new class of drug like what's called pcsk9 inhibitors like you don't see like terrible things happening to people like these people tolerate it really well they're um they're Cardiovascular plaques go away, they start reversing and they, they like lose their atherosclerosis. So, like, one of the things that I'm becoming really interested in. Oh, yeah. And the last fact is like most people, especially most men, the, the majority of men develop and have a major cardiovascular event in their lifetime. The majority of men. And if you don't have every single cardiovascular risk factor completely optimized, your risk factor, your risk is as high as like 37%. So, like, for me, for example, just because my blood pressure. Pressure and I have congenitally high blood pressure at like uh like 125 over like 82 or something above. It's like I'm pre-hypertensive. Because of that, like I have like a 37% chance of having a lifetime major cardiovascular event, which is like super high. It's like a one in three chance of having a major cardiovascular, event, yeah. which also means I have like subclinical atherosclerosis constantly developing, which is probably gonna in the long-term impair like sexual function. It's going to impair maybe even brain function, like in subclinical ways that aren't, you're not going to be able to notice, but will sort of like slowly creep up on you over time. So I've become really excited about this idea of like, and, and there are people, there are like super, super smart, like super well-informed people in the cardiovascular disease research community who completely agree with me about this. So I'm not like the only one, but they're still sort of like outliers compared to the mainstream of the guidelines people, the, who, the people who formulate the guidelines, but there are people and i I'm, I'm becoming like, I'm starting to believe like everybody should be lowering their LDL cholesterol. Like if we can do that. And I think most people can lower their LDL cholesterol with drugs without having untoward side effects. I think most people can, I'm not sure exactly the percentages, I would say at least 80, probably 90, maybe even more percent of people can do that man you're going to dramatically cut the rate of cardiovascular disease like strokes things that are going to permanently impair your brain like you're literally going to have like brain impairments uh heart attacks which like literally is going to permanently impair your everyday day-to-day function if you have right, a heart attack right. um if we can prevent like a substantial proportion of those, and just with say reducing your LDL cholesterol by 40 milligrams per deciliter, which isn't that much, you go from say most people are like 100, 100, you go to yeah, 100, to about like 60, 60, just that, and you do that over the course of 40 years, you cut your risk of all that stuff by 50 percent. So you cut that in half, and you do that on a population level, then you're cutting like half of all cardiovascular disease events. Like that'd be crazy, that'd be crazy. Like, yeah, perfect. between 650 and 700,000 uh, thousand people die. Every single year from cardiovascular disease. So if you cut that in half, like that's like you're saving like 300,000 people a year. So like I'm becoming really excited about this idea of maybe, of maybe. And then there are new shots that people can take, um, yeah. Like intramuscular shots you can take twice a year. Maybe we'll get down to once a year, where you can like have your LDL cholesterol with with minimal side effects or notice side effects for most people. I'm getting super excited about this idea of perhaps everybody being on lipid lowering treatment, especially I would say bodybuilders and like athletes yes, and people who like, have high blood pressure who are bulking and that kind of stuff because. I, I don't know if I, I'm not, I don't call myself necessarily a bodybuilder, but I do like bulk up and I do right, right. heavier and stuff, especially like people who are bodybuilders. Like, um, uh, you're going to be at elevated risk at baseline and sort of mitigating that through some low, low level of lipid, uh, of lipid therapy. So one way to do that, one way to do that, uh, that is easy and is going to be side effect free for the, for, I think the vast majority of people, even more than simply just taking a statin. It's like a really low dose statin. So what I've been doing is I've, and of course you have to go through a doctor to do this. So you have to talk to your doctor. So fortunately I can't give you like direct medical advice which you can immediately act on. You have to have a gatekeeper as a doctor. So that helped right. me a little bit. But um, I, I I started out with Rosuvastatin at 2.5 milligrams. It's like a super low dose, almost unheard of. And then a five milligrams of I Have I've, I noticed absolutely zero side effects. And I went from a hundred milligrams per deciliter ldl cholesterol down to 50 no side effects at all no side effects whatsoever it shouldn't it shouldn't affect uh muscle mass gain especially if you're a bodybuilder like maybe you might have like a one percent
0: especially you know, yeah I mean, you're taking exogenous hormones too yeah What's yeah. The effect you of- may,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah you may have like a one percent uh but it's such a small amount that it's been hard compared to, to the risk reduction in, yeah in right. studies yeah compared to the risk reduction so bodybuilders, have, as you know, bodybuilders have already been doing this for decades at this point, but uh, I think it's becoming more mainstream among bodybuilders. But yeah, I definitely think that people in general, especially people who might be at a higher risk, such as bodybuilders, might think about doing something like a... A poor, like a poor man's approach would be something like a low dose statin plus ezetimibe. Uh, somebody who has a lot of money would go with something like incliceran, which is the injectable uh, twice yearly PCSK9 inhibitor. And that's going to give you like almost no side effects. But again, the low dose statin and the low very, dose very ezetimibe low. is also yeah. going to be low dose, very, yeah. very low rate of side effects and, as well. And, so and, that's, and, that's my feelings there.
0: And same with some of these blood pressure medications. They're getting so selective at working on the specific receptor or whatever that the like uh, for ARBs, even the, the side effects are very, very minimal. So if you're talking about things that could could manage your risk, um, those are probably pretty huge. Kevin, I, I'm gonna let you get out of here because I know you got uh, BJJ, uh, but I just wanted to yes. let you know, I, I appreciate your time today. Um, and I would love to have you on again. I have a ton of more questions. I know you're really busy, but you know, in the next uh, few months or anything like that, if you have, you have some time to pop in, that'd be really awesome.
1: Yeah, that was great. Thanks for having yeah. me. That that got that was fun, definitely.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I I I just keep doing your thing, man. I, I think uh, if if you don't, where can people find you uh, as far as um, social media and all this content you're putting out? Contribute to your your um, research and stuff. For sure. Are, are you asking where people can yeah, find yeah, me? Yeah.
1: Um, you can find me at Kevin and Bass, K-V-I-N-N-B-A-S-S, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, also on Patreon. You can also find me on the, I have a Reddit called Kevin, ba- Kevin Bass, K-V-I-N-B-A-S-S, and uh, YouTube and Spotify, our podcast at The Kevin Bass Show. And that's where my podcast is, so.
0: Sweet. Yeah, I've been, I've been consuming tons of that content. I, I watch it on all the cardio I've been doing. Um, so uh, I'll link all that stuff below. And uh, uh, this is a really interesting talk, Kevin. I, I really appreciate your time, man. Awesome. Appreciate it.